Well, thank you for the kind introduction, Austin. It's a, it's a privilege to serve. And if you, if you, as you heard already, my name is Ewing and currently serve as a deacon here at Calvary. And if you haven't realized, Austin has just cut his hair. He has a new hairstyle. And I have to tell you, brother, that hairstyle really reminds me, takes me back like six years or six, about six to seven years ago. Um, Walking in, back then he was clean shaven, obviously, but, but uh, it was, it really brings back memories. So thank you so much. Well, I think without hearts full, I would like to start us off with a, a word of prayer. Let us go to the Lord once again. Blessed are you, O Father the King of heaven and earth. For the heavens declare your glory and the sky proclaim your handiwork. O Lord, let those who have breath praise you, for yours is the kingdom and you are exalted as head above all. Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, for we know that apart from him, we have no part with you. We know you are a kind and merciful God who lends us your ears. So as we spend this time in worship, in through the reading and the pro- proclamation of your word, may you be magnified above all. May it be a sweet-smelling aroma rising up to the throne of grace that you may receive all of the glory. It is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the subject matter of today's lesson in this series is corporate worship. And as we consider corporate worship as a rhythm in the life of a believer, some might be tempted to equate it, equate it to congregational singing. When we join our voices in its various vocal qualities in rich harmony to the living God. However, a quick survey of the scriptures would demonstrate that definition to be lacking. So turn with me to Exodus 4, chapter 4, verse 31. And I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And the people believed, and when they heard the Lord has visited the people of Israel, and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. I'm just going to go through the next three verses. Isaiah 19.21. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Hebrews 12.28. You can just write it down. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us... Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Whoa. Revelation 20, four. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God that none, that those who had not worshiped the beast of his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. So what I just did there was just go through, uh, it's a quick survey, a jet tour of the whole counsel of God, two from the Old Testament, two from the New, 
to show that it's difficult to substantiate from Scripture that corporate worship is synonymous with congregational singing without suffocating the breath of the Word of God. So what is corporate worship? Now I'm kind of turning back the, the mic to you. After all, you've just participated in it for the past hour, haven't you? So what is it? Anyone want to take a guess? And where can we find it in Scripture, uh, the definition of corporate worship? Anyone? Any Scripture that comes to mind? Maybe somewhere in the Gospels? Well, you can find that in John 4. So let's start with John 4. I was hoping someone would actually yell out John 4, but that didn't happen, but it's okay. So our passage of the study, let's turn to John 4, verses 19 to 24, which I believe to be very definitional to the nature of corporal worship. And if you're there, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this interaction of Jesus with the Samaritan woman, where it contains the proclamation that he is the provider of the living water, and even revealed to her that, she is, that he is the great I am, the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And our text is nested within that exchange, and it may seem at first to be a, a small little rabbit trail as the Samaritan woman tries to divert Jesus' attention from, from her sin. But however, as you will soon see, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, it contributes significantly to its overall message and answers our question for today. What is corporate worship? So verse 19, after Jesus had pointed out her sin, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So here's, my, here's the proposition that I want to put before you. And if I have the clicker, or if you can turn on to the next slide, this passage shows us there are four elements of corporate worship. Four elements of corporate worship. The first being, a true, a true corporate worship constitutes a true view of the deity, or in other words, the object or the person that we are worshiping. This we see in Jesus' rebuke to the Samaritan woman of worship in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. And the reason, reason for this is because it's not as if the Samaritan doesn't know God. It's because the Samaritans, they hold to a, a truncated, a, a shortened revelation of God, because their scriptures only consist of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, while the Jewish canon 
which also included the writings and the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament. So by saying in the next verse, uh, as it continues on, for salvation is from the Jews, Jesus shows that they are standing, the Samaritans were standing outside the stream of God's saving revelation, which identifies the Messiah as one who comes from the line of David. This is similar to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verses 22-23, when Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. And then he goes on to declare the excellencies of his God, the one true God, the creator of all, who calls all to repentance as he has fixed a day of judgment. So in order to truly worship, one must know the God he worships. Who is your God? What are your thoughts of God? What, what do you think of God? Is he this, the man up there, as the culture tells us? Is he the harmless bearded man who just loves to cuddle with everyone, as you've seen in the cartoons? Or is he God, whom Scripture declares as the Alpha, the Omega, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Almighty God, one who is worthy to be feared and revered by all? Look at how Scripture des describes God. Look at Genesis chapter 31, verse, verses 42. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. We just sung the man of sorrows, one of the many titles of Jesus. But here we see God carries two more titles, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. Is that your vision of God? A God that is described as your fear? Albert Martin, a, a faithful pastor, a huge influence in my life, rightfully said in his book, The Fear of God, I quote, if my perception of God and my comprehension of his revealed character do not lead me to fear him as Isaac did, I have not rightly understood who God is, end quote. Why? Well, Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, the fear of God is not just the beginning of knowledge, but it is the chief part of knowledge. It's like learning the alphabet. You don't leave that behind when you learn it as a child. You go from little words to big words. You know, consider the most brilliant and the most eloquent orator. What is he dependent on when he forms his words and sentences? The alphabet he learned as a child. You see, you never move away from the fear of God. The fear of God or the reverence of God must undergird everything that you do as a Christian. 
lest you think that this is a mere, sh the, the mere shadowy relic of the Old Testament, something that is meant to be regarded, discarded. Look at Philippians 2, 12, 13, when Paul exhorted the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with what? joy and exuberance, happiness and laughter. What does it say? Fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Revelation 15, great are your marvelous, are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Now, I'm not saying that you know, we should be cowering with, fear, cowering with fear as if God is just waiting out there to get you. Right? But what I'm saying is that there is this reverence a majestic view of God, that He is high and lifted up, seated upon the throne of heaven as you recognize who you're dealing with. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Element number two, a true corporate worship consists of a true view, requires a true view of one's identity. And we see that in verse 23, where it identifies the subject of the worship as, quote-unquote, worshipers. Daniel Block, in his book, For the Glory of God, said, writes, to be human is to, be, is to worship. To be human is to worship. End quote. This is quite similar to the description of the relationship between the sinner and the sin. We are sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Why is that? It's because that's our identity. We are images of God. And as images of God, we are to, meant to reflect His glory, like the moon that reflects the rays of the sun, like the pen which serves to only write in the hand of a writer. So it is with images that serves to glorify the object that it is reflecting. Not only, not only we are images of God, we are fallen images of God. As you hear... The constant testimony of Scripture, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalms 14, there is none who does good, not even one. This condition was acknowledged by Jeremiah when he describes our heart as one that is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And when the Lord spoke to Israel through Ezekiel, he made it clear that our hearts is where we set up idols. And this was why John Calvin famously wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. As these two truths come together, as you put these two together before you, you have to recognize that we are not in a role-playing game. 
this is not a computer game, a simulation where you get to choose your name, your family, your race, as you quote unquote create your character. No, we are born. We are born into the fallen race of Adam. This is our heritage, and we have to recognize that. We don't come into this world sinless and without any stain. We are not the first Adam when we came into our world. Turn with me to Isaiah 6, and I will sit there for a little while. Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 4. And I want you to notice, notice how the angels were described. And I'm quickly jumping to verse 2. Above him, him as in God, stood the seraphim, each having six wings. Two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Notice that. These are holy angels who in perfect obedience, never once sin against God, never once. They, what is their disposition? They covered their face. They covered their feet as they were overwhelmed by the majesty and the holiness of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as the ground shook and trembled, the scene shifts to this man, to this man named Isaiah, a sinful creature of the dust, overwhelmed by his unworthiness as he felt his sinful eyes gazing upon desecrating the sight of God. And it was this very recognition that causes him to cry out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen, gazed upon even the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, we don't just waltz into the throne, of, throne room of God without any regard of our position. No. This is why we come recognizing our need for Christ and His righteousness to cover us. We don't come as the sinless. We come as the redeemed. We come as the forgiven. This is why we, when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus because we recognize our bankrupt state of our soul and our need for His intercession before the Father. Charles Spurgeon, in his exposition for, in Psalms 15, writes, Where angels bow with veiled faces, how shall man be able to worship at all? The unthinking may imagine it may be a very easy matter to approach the Most High, and when professedly engaged in His worship, they have no questionings of their heart as to their fitness for it. But only truly humble souls often shrink down under the sense of their utter unworthiness and would not dare to approach the throne of God of holiness if it were not for Him, our Lord, our Advocate, who can abide in the heavenly temple because His righteousness endures forever. So we jump on to the third element, a true view of its activity. True worship requires a true view of its activity. We find this in verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
This informs us that the activity of worship must be consistent with, nat- with the nature of God. So the same way we can walk in the light, we were commanded to walk in the light in 1 John 1, the reasoning that was given to us by the Apostle John who penned this same gospel said that because God is light. Walk in the light because God is light. In that same letter, he's, he also wrote to, uh, to the recipient of this letter, love one another. Love one another. Why? Because God is love. In the same way, in this very passage, worship God in spirit and truth. Why? Because God is spirit and is the embodiment of truth. In the immediate context, since that we see Jesus is saying, what Jesus is essentially saying is that since God is spirit in this very debate between where, where is the place of worship, the proper worship of him is a matter of spirit. It's a matter of the immaterial. It is what your soul, it is has to do with the engagement of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength rather than the physical location. Back then it was between Jerusalem or versus Mount Gerizim. It is not the mere outward act of worship, but of a spirit. You remember the indictment of, of the Lord. You just heard that in first service, Isaiah 29, 13, who said, These people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. True worship, true corporate worship, is also according to the truth, which is found in its words. In Jesus' high, high, high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to his Father saying, Sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And this informs us that our prayers, our offerings, and our songs ought to be regulated by Holy Scripture. We don't want to be singing songs that doesn't even represent Him at all. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. As you come to Him, and He tells you your identity, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, as you yourself, like living stone, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First of all, notice that this passage describes the believers as living stones. Are individual living stones a temple by itself? No. They are living stones that are built up. This is why we gather, built up as a spiritual house. It describes the, com- the corporate component of worship. And not only that we, that we, the gathering of the church, are the temple, but also we are the priest. Well, what do priests do? They offer up spiritual sacrifices. That is what priests do. We don't come here to only receive. We come here to give, to give our adoration to God, to give praises to God as spiritual sacrifices. So that's why this this idea that God, I want you to notice the adjective, acceptable sacrifices, the idea that God would accept 
just about any sacrifice from men. It's without scriptural warrant. Does not God accept only Abel's sacrifice rather than Cain? Does not God indict the people in Isaiah saying, in Isaiah 1, saying, quote, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my court? End quote. So who has required of you your songs? Who has required the sermon that Pastor Brad has just magnificently preached? Who has required the prayers that were offered? And our response ought to be, why you, O Lord? You have required it in your word. And this is why the activity of worship is a conscious activity as it requires the thoughtful engagement of the entire being of the worshiper. One might say, phew, this is tough work. I thought Sunday was a day of rest, you know? Well, friend, that is the effect of sin upon your heart where privileges become a burden to us. Remember what David said in 2 Samuel verses 24, chapter 24, verse 24. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. And also in Psalms 84, verse 10, saying, where, where it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. What does a doorkeeper do? It's a job, isn't it? They stood on guard for hours on end, day and night, making sure that no unclean person would enter the temple. That's not a glamorous job. And yet, the psalmist consider it a privilege to be a servant of the Most High, offering spiritual sacrifices in, your, in His courts, recognizing that just being there, just a moment, is better than a thousand hours spent elsewhere. And element number four, true corporate worship requires a true view of its necessity. And you find this, you know, backtracking, backtracking one verse before verse 23, and I will now read it in its entirety. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. See, God desires and enables those who come to Him, to come to worship Him. And notice the phrase that the Father is seeking. He's enabling. He seeks and this is, why, this is why true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And therefore, no true worshiper can render spiritual worship unless God has declared it so. In a similar vein, Jesus says in John, 4, uh, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The application of this of this text is simply this. You know, there are days, and I feel it myself too, there are days when our heart do grow cold. And when singing songs just seems too hard to us, and yet we know in our minds that this is, this is right. 
This is what I must do. Not I want to do, but I must do. He is worthy of my praise, but, but just, just something about my soul, the state of my heart that brings it so hard for me to come before God and to sing to Him. And that is when, when we ought to cry out to God. Cry out to God. For we know that in this text that God will enable his people to worship him in spirit and truth. What is impossible for man may seem impossible to man is possible with God. All things are possible with God. We ought to have the same demeanor as uh, the father in Mark, um, Mark 10, I believe, who cried out and said, I believe in, a, in response to Jesus's uh, offer to heal, heal his daughter. I believe. Help my unbelief. And therefore, we ought to pray, oh Lord, help us. Help my poor and needy soul to proclaim the wondrous truth of your grace. And we come in humility, true humility, not fabricated humility where you just dress up, everything's just happy or um, you just face a shine, you know, you dress really rightly and you try to hide everything that's in you. No, cry out to God for He seeks true worshiper. He's the one seeking it and therefore will He not render to you and power you to worship Him in spirit and truth? When you wake up in the morning and now I'm deviating from the subject of corporate worship, when you wake up in the morning to to go to work and you feel your body is heavy and your bones lay, you know, you just want to take another five-minute nap, and, but you realize that you have to read your Bible, you know, and you need to pray, but it just seems so hard. Let me suggest that cry out to God. Pray to Him. Lord, help me. Help me get through this day, for I know that apart from you, apart from you, I will just fall altar then against my holy God. So, so as we come to a close, just want to re-emphasize the, the four elements of true corporate worship. One, a true view of the deity, the object of our worship. A true view of one's identity a true view of the activity of worship, and the true view of its necessity. And with that, I want to close this with a really short word of prayer and then open up the floor for discussions, and then we'll move on to a table discussion. Heavenly Father, we have just seen from your word that you indeed are holy. You are worthy to be praised. Who can fathom Fathom all of your attributes, for our minds are limited, for the mind of God is unfathomable. Help us to worship you in true worship, one that is spiritual and of truth, one that correctly represents you in our daily life. May our prayers not be this cold repetition of the same old things and the same old stuff, but be one of full of exuberance, one that is illuminated by your word and regulated by it. Oh God, help us, for we are 
We are sheep. We are lamb. We are so helpless within ourselves. We, remind, we are reminded of the words of Jesus that He is the vine and we are the branches. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. We offer up this day to you. We thank you for the provision of your word, the bread of the living God. It is in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.